How much should you give Jesus? How much of your time? How much of your money? How much of your energy? How much is enough? To even ask such a question shows that we don't really get it. To ask how much you should give Jesus shows that you don't really understand who he is or what he's worth. When you really see the worth of Jesus, the question becomes, how much can I give Jesus? Not how much should I give Jesus? To ask how much is enough suggests you're concerned with giving Jesus just what you have to, what you ought to. But really it should be the desire of your heart to give Jesus everything you possibly can. We shouldn't be seeking to try to get by, well, I want to give him what he wants, but, but you know, I don't want to go overboard. How much of your time should you give Jesus? As much of it as you possibly can. How much of your money should you give Jesus? As much of it as you possibly can. How much of your energy should you give Jesus? As much of it as you possibly can. Disciples of Jesus should show extravagant love and devotion to Jesus. I'm talking about radical, over-the-top demonstrations of love and devotion to Christ. Let me say it another way. When it comes to expressing our love and devotion to Jesus, there is no such thing as getting carried away. There's no such thing as too much. There's no such thing as giving too much, going too far. The most radical, over-the-top, extravagant expressions of love and devotion to Jesus are very appropriate. Our scripture this morning is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And the main idea of these verses is this. In a world that is hostile to Jesus, his disciples show extravagant love and devotion to him. In a world that is hostile to Jesus, his disciples show extravagant love and devotion to him. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, very costly, pure nard. She broke the jar, poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they were scolding her. 
But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Open your word to us. And open us to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The message of God's word for us will become very clear as we observe three contrasts in these verses. Three contrasts. Here's the first contrast I want to show you. In verses 1 through 3, we see a contrast in actions. A contrast in actions. Verse 1 says, The Passover and unleavened bread... We're two days away. The Passover was roughly a 12-hour period that spanned over two days. You got to remember the Jewish day started at sunset. So on the afternoon of one day, the 14th of the month Nisan, during the afternoon, the Passover lambs were slaughtered in preparation for the Passover meal. They were slaughtered at the temple. After sunset, which for us would be the same day, but for them it would mark the next day because the day began at sundown. So after sundown, they would have the Passover meal. Now you probably already know the Passover meal was the annual Israelite festival that commemorated Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt. Specifically, the Passover commemorates the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn sons in all of Israel. You remember God instructed the people to, to slaughter a lamb and put the blood over the doorposts and on the lentils. And he passed over, the death angel passed over the homes of all the Israelites and they didn't lose their firstborn. Well, the festival of unleavened bread, which is also mentioned in verse 1, followed directly after the Passover and lasted seven days. So essentially, the Passover became to be viewed as the seven-day period that covered the Passover and also the seventh-day celebration of unleavened bread. You will also remember unleavened bread celebrates when Israel came out of Egypt came out of slavery. You remember they came in a hurry, didn't have time to let the yeast leaven in the bread and they had to cook it unleavened and eat it without yeast, which means it was just flat. And during unleavened bread, they could eat only unleavened bread, which again celebrated their deliverance. So the Passover and unleavened bread is a celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Now, we see that that festival is two days away. In verse one, it says the chief priests and scribes were seeking how after seizing Jesus in secret, they might kill him. 
They had already decided Jesus has to die. They're trying to figure out a way to arrest him in secret. Now the question is, why in secret? Jesus has been in the temple every day. Why didn't they just go grab him? Well, verse 2 says, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. You see, during Passover and unleavened bread, there would be hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. And keep in mind, Jesus was a pretty popular figure. The people were amazed by his miracles and by his teaching. If the religious leaders tried to arrest Jesus in the midst of this great crowd of people, it could cause an uproar of the people. It could cause this massive crowd to kind of revolt. And a crowd this large would be impossible for them to control. And if a riot started, then the Roman army is going to get involved and the whole thing could end very badly. So the religious leaders are smart enough to know that to arrest Jesus right now, it had to be done in secret. So what they're trying to do is figure out a way to get their hands on him without the people knowing it, without causing a riot. So what you see in verse 1 and 2 is one group who is actively planning to kill Jesus. Their actions show the utmost hostility and hatred for Jesus. But in verse 3, we see someone who is determined to honor Jesus. Her actions show the utmost love and devotion. Notice verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, very costly pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it over his head. You may remember that during the week, I've told you Jesus and his disciples would go to Jerusalem, to the temple. But in the evening, they would go back to Bethany where they spent the night. Well, on this occasion, Jesus and his disciples are at Bethany for the evening. They are at the evening meal, reclining at the table. And a woman approaches Jesus with a perfume vase or a box with a jar, with a, with a neck on it that contained perfume. The box would be made from what we would call alabaster. Highly prized perfume made from spikenard. Spikenard is an oil that was imported from India and that made it very, very expensive. We learn in verse 5 that this perfume was worth over 300 denarii. That's about one year's salary for a laborer. Now here's the thing. Women, for the most part, were excluded from careers that would earn them enough money to buy objects of this value. For a woman to have something that cost this much money was very unusual because most women didn't have jobs that would earn them enough money to buy anything like that. What that tells us is that this vase of perfume was probably a family heirloom. 
passed on to her from likely her parents, her father or someone. And what that means is, in addition to the monetary value of this perfume, it had sentimental value. Now I want you to pay attention to how Mark describes her actions in verse 3. First, she breaks the jar. You see that? She breaks it. Which means she broke the neck of the jar. She didn't shatter the whole jar. Instead of pouring the oil out of the jar, she breaks the neck of the jar. You know what's interesting about that? It's completely unnecessary. She didn't have to ruin the jar to pour out the oil. What that says to us, this is a demonstration for her of unreserved devotion to Jesus. She wanted to give all of it to Jesus, not just the oil, but even the container that it was held in. She was holding nothing back. And secondly, you'll notice she poured the poor perfume over his head. Jesus is not really anointed with oil. He's being drenched in it. She pours out every last drop. And in verse 8, if you look, Jesus says she anointed his body, which means it was enough that it ran down his whole body. This is extravagant love and devotion. Extravagant love and devotion. She has given Everything she possibly could, the most valuable item she has, she has saved none of it. She even breaks the jar. Now let me ask you a question. Could there be, could, could there be any greater contrast between the actions of these religious leaders and the actions of this woman? The religious leaders are doing everything they possibly can to kill Jesus. This woman is doing everything she possibly can to honor Jesus. One is a picture of extreme hate. One is a picture of extravagant love. I want you to think about this for me for just a minute. Our society is no longer indifferent to Jesus and those who follow him. Increasingly, society is hostile to the beliefs and practices of true Christians. And here's what I want to say to you. In an environment like this, our love and devotion for Jesus should stand out like a bonfire at midnight. While the world is blaring their songs, celebrating drunkenness and sexual immorality. The people of God should be singing at the top of our lungs, majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory and honor and praise. The best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our resources should be given to make much of Jesus. Our church calendar should scream, we love Jesus. Our church budget should scream, we love Jesus. 
we should seek to bring honor and glory to our Lord in the most over-the-top, extravagant ways we possibly can. Doing everything within our power to make much of him. Let me ask you a question. You want to see more people in these pews? Let's worship Jesus with hearts ignited by a white hot love and devotion for Jesus. Let the fire of our devotion burn until everyone in this community can see the flame and feel the heat. Let's pour our time and energy and resources into worship, into extravagant acts of love and devotion for the king. And I'm telling you, when the fire burns bright enough, people will come to watch it burn. Contrast and actions, extreme hate, extravagant love. We should be marked by that extravagant over-the-top love. I want to show you another contrast. There's a contrast in values. Notice verse 4. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Some of the people present at dinner were angered by the woman's actions. So they were expressing their anger to one another, but their hostility was actually directed to the woman. In verse 6, you'll notice Jesus says, let her alone. They were complaining to each other, but their anger was directed at her. Which tells us the woman likely was feeling intimidated. Jesus says, leave her alone. She was being openly rebuked for her action. You see it in verse 5? They were scolding why? Well, because as verse 4 says, in their eyes, the perfume had been wasted. That perfume could have been sold and that money used to help the poor. A year's wages could have helped a lot of poor people. That's absolutely true. And what's more, God has always commanded his people to care about the poor. Caring for the poor is something we should absolutely do. But that's not the issue here. You know what those who are complaining, you know what those who are fussing at this woman, you know what they're really saying? The poor are worthy of such an extravagant gift, but not Jesus. See, they aren't just demeaning the woman and her gift. They are demeaning Jesus. Now, Jesus has the complete opposite view of what this woman has done. Verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work for me. You always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. The point that it is not okay to neglect the needs of the poor. But the point is you can care for the poor at any time. Why? Because the poor aren't going away. There will always be needy. There will always be poor. But Jesus would not always be with them. He would only be with them about one more day. 
he was going to die much sooner than any of them realized. That's why Jesus said in verse 8, she is doing what she could. Everything she was able to do for him, she was doing. He said, she's anointing my body beforehand for burial. This is Jesus' hour. This is the time when his predictions about his own destiny are going to come to fulfillment. Right? He's been saying he's going to go to Jerusalem and be mistreated by the religious leaders and be crucified and die. Now that time has now come. The cross, the climax of his ministry is at hand. The poor can wait. Something much bigger is going on here. Now, there is no reason for us to believe that this woman saw her actions as anointing Jesus for burial. Jesus is not saying that's what she was consciously doing. She was just giving him everything she had out of love and devotion to him. An extravagant act of love. But Jesus knew what was going to happen the next day. He was going to die. And so in his mind, he says, this is nothing more than anointing my body for burial. giving an added meaning to her action. The others judge by appearances. Jesus judges by motive. By their standards, she's done a wasteful thing. By his standards, she's done a beautiful thing. The, listen, the value of a gift signals the value of the person to whom it is given. The value of a gift signals the value of the person to whom it is given. The extravagance of this woman shows that she alone understands the immeasurable worth of Jesus. Now, can you see it? Can you see the contrast in values? One places a low value on Jesus, implying he isn't worthy of such extravagance. The other sees Jesus as worthy of even the most extravagant gifts of love and devotion. What a blatant contrast in values. How much is Jesus worth? How much is he worth? If we spent every last cent of our yearly budget on worship, if the only line item on our budget was worship Jesus and we had all of our money in that one line item, is that too much? Is that going too far? Or is he worth it? So, well, we have to pay the light bill. No, we don't. Nowhere in the Bible is the church commanded to pay the light bill. But we are called to worship the king. If we gave it all to him for worship, is it too much? If I bragged on Jesus to every person I came in contact with, is that too much? Is that going overboard? Or is he worth it? 
If I spent every second of my available time seeking to know him more and love him more, is that too much? Is that going overboard or is he worth it? If I spent every spare nickel seeking to advance his cause and, and promote the worship of the king, is that too much? Is that going overboard or is he worth it? When it comes to expressing our love and devotion for Jesus, there is no such thing as too much. You can't go overboard. You can't get carried away. Why? Because his worth is beyond price. No gift you could give is too much because there's no way to put a price tag on what he's worth. Anything you could possibly give is far less than he deserves. If you're trying to show Jesus the love and devotion that he is due, you will always be playing catch up. He is infinitely precious. He is worthy of the most extravagant acts of love and devotion. I hope you can see how clear the contrast is. The contrast in actions. One is extreme hate. One is extravagant love. The contrast in values. One says this is a waste. Such extravagance is wasted on Jesus. The other says he's worthy of this and anything else I can give. There's a third contrast I want you to see. A contrast and legacies. Look with me at verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus knows his death and burial is not the end of his ministry. He's already looking beyond his resurrection, beyond his ascension, to the days when his gospel will be preached all over the world. The days described in the book of Acts. He's already looking to that time when his apostles will take the gospel out to the world. He's looking to the days when the good news of his life, death, and resurrection will be preached to people of every nation and language. And he says everywhere the gospel is preached, this woman's story is going to be told. The story of what she's done. What does that mean? It means basically this. Everywhere in this world there is a church. People have heard the story of this woman and what she did. That's her legacy. Her legacy is one of extravagant love and devotion to Jesus. And there's someone else whose story has been told everywhere there's a church. We see him in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve original disciples. 
He's been a constant companion of Jesus for three years. He had seen Jesus' miracles. He had heard Jesus' powerful preaching. But Judas' God was money. In John's account of this same story in the Gospel of John, we discover that Judas was one of the ones rebuking this woman for her extravagant gift. John 12, 5 and 6, it says this, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to take from it what was put into it. Judas wanted to get his hands on the money that perfume could have brought to the treasury. Well, Judas may have missed out on that payday, but he had another chip he could cash in. You see, Judas knew the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And he also knew they had to secure Jesus in some less public location than the temple so as not to cause a riot. But if they were going to do that, the chief priest needed somebody who could inform them of Jesus' movements. In other words, they needed somebody who could tell them where he was going to be when he was not in the public eye. In particular, they needed to know where he could be found at night when they could get him in secret. Judas could provide that for a price. Verse 11, or verse 10, Judas went to the chief priest to betray him. When they heard this, they were glad, promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. He went away to betray him. The word betray means to hand over or deliver, as in to hand over to the authorities. Put Jesus in their custody. And verse 11 is one of the most damning statements in all of Scripture. And when they heard this, they were glad. When they finally found out they could get their hands on Jesus, they had an answer to their dilemma. They had a way to get their hands on Jesus without causing a riot. He was as good as dead, and it gave them great joy. And you know the rest of the story. They gave Judas 30 pieces of silver, and the next night he led them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they arrested Jesus. What is Judas' legacy? I'm going to let you hear it in his own words. Matthew 27, 4. This is his legacy. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's his legacy. That's why when the gospel writers give us the list of the original 12 disciples, he is always last and he is always described as the one who betrayed him. Except for in the gospel of Luke and Luke calls him the traitor. That's his legacy. Everywhere the gospel is known, everywhere Jesus is worshipped, 
this woman's legacy of love and devotion is known. And everywhere the gospel is known, everywhere Jesus is worshiped, Judas' legacy as the one who betrayed Jesus is known. What contrasting legacies to leave. One day, those of us who make up Society Hill Baptist Church today will be gone. What kind of legacy will this generation of Society Hill Baptist Church leave? Will we leave a, a, a legacy of radical acts of devotion and love for Jesus? I want the church of tomorrow to look back on the church of today and have absolutely no doubt that our highest priority was the glory and honor of Jesus. I want history to tell of a people who gave the best they had to worship. I want those who follow behind us to see a church that cut no corners and spared no expense, held nothing back in order to make much of the one whose name is above every name. I worked for a short time for a man in Columbia. I won't say his name because many of you probably know who he is. This is when Angela and I were just dating. I was sitting in his office. At the time, I was a minister of music part-time, and I worked full-time. He said, Paul, you know what's wrong with the church? I said, no, enlighten me. He said, the problem with the church is they worship Jesus like he's God. I'm the only one surprised by that statement. You know what I told him? He is God. You know what's astounding? This man was a baptized member of Calvary Baptist Church on Church Street on Keys Hill. How do you get to be a member of a Baptist church and you don't even believe Jesus is God? He says we worship Jesus too much. We worship Jesus too much. You know why I know we don't worship Jesus too much? Because it's impossible. You can't do it. We'll spend all of eternity worshiping the Lamb of God 
and we'll never even begin to offer him the worship he deserves. You can't worship him too much. Let me say it to you like this. I don't know what your personal devotion to Jesus looks like. I don't know how much you're giving to him of your time, your money, your energy, your heart. I don't know how much you're giving to him, but I can tell you this, it ain't enough. It ain't enough. Say, well, preacher, what is enough? Wrong question. Stop asking what's enough. There's no such thing as enough. You can't do enough. The question is how much can I possibly give the master? How much of my love and devotion and energy? Let me ask you a question. What does it look like in your life for you to perform radical, over-the-top, extravagant acts of love and devotion? That's what this woman did. What would that look like for you? Instead of giving Jesus the leftovers... What if you kept the leftovers and gave him everything else of your time, your energy, your money, your love, your gifts? Instead of worried about, well, you know, I want to do what I have to, but no, listen, if that's the way you think, you don't understand who Jesus is at all. You don't get it. You don't understand his value. And I'm challenge you to think about this. Not only what does extravagant love and devotion look like for you personally, but what does that look like for our church? What does that look like for our church? 